Hello, and welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on August 27th, 2021. Susan Day is a professor of urban forestry in the Department of Forest Resource Management at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, and a program director for the Bachelors of Urban Forestry. Susan's research focuses on managing urban soils to enhance tree growth and longevity in the context of environmental challenges such as stormwater mitigation and land development impacts on soil-mediated ecosystem services. Her research in the water relations of tree-engineered soil systems and in partnership with the Chesapeake Bay Trust has informed stormwater policy in the Chesapeake Bay region of the United States. Susan has led Urban Forestry 2020, a research-based investigation into urban forestry career paths and education. Susan has published more than 130 articles and book chapters on urban forests and urban soils and is the 2017 recipient of the LC Chadwick Award for Arboricultural Research. Susan holds a BA from Yale University an MS from Cornell University, and a PhD from Virginia Tech. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Susan. We're delighted you could be with us today. Your reputation precedes you. Hal and I just keep talking about the University of British Columbia and all of its wonderful works for urban forestry. And we kind of get goosebumps talking about it because you're really the epicenter right now globally for urban forestry work which is amazing. It's an amazing title, but we want to know how did that come to be? Well, I'm delighted to be here. So thank you for inviting me. So at at UBC, the University of British Columbia in 2015, there was a, a group of faculty who germinated the idea of actually launching a full fledged urban forestry undergraduate program. And they really, thought about it as its own entity and not not trying to just kind of tuck it under another program. And that gave them the freedom to conceive of it in in a completely new and open way. And so the program there is a really interesting blend of social sciences, which of course are critical in urban forestry, and forest sciences, you know, tree management and, and biology and so forth, ecology, and then also uh, design and planning, which is also a really key component in urban forest management. So having those sort of three legs together has really created a unique program. And we have over 250 undergraduate students. So it's been very successful in terms of attracting students and the students are wonderful. I mean, that's one of my favorite things about being there is just working with the students. 
So that's kind of how it came to be. And then Cecil Kananendike was hired as the program director. You know, Cecil is, is fantastic and just has a really warm way of reaching out to people. And he really brought a lot of people together in that program. We have excellent graduate students and so forth. And then he has now taken over the role of leading the Masters in Urban Forest Leadership, which is a new master's program, which is just starting this fall. And with its first cohort of 10 students, so it's a cohort program. And then I came on in January of 2019 as the program director for the Bachelor of Urban Forestry. You know, urban forestry is changing rapidly. The field's developing. The needs of cities are changing. The science is getting more sophisticated. So it's a very dynamic area. And we've been working very hard to recruit new faculty. And even though the program's new, we're doing curricular reviews, like constant improvement. We're looking at sort of building the urban forestry network because I think one of the challenges we face is that the city might have ambitions about green spaces or urban forest management, but often it's not necessarily clear to those city managers, perhaps, like how to achieve those goals, right? So they may not recognize like, where's the expertise lie that I need to accomplish something? Who is the person I ask if I want to get information about, you know, how to manage uh, soils or how to manage trees or how to, how to be concerned about maybe the species composition of our urban forest? Because a lot of cities and towns don't have dedicated urban foresters. There are many, many towns and cities that have pretty limited staff in that area. And so we're all going to see a lot of changes over the next decade. So I think it's a pretty exciting time. Susan, we also like to ask, how did you find your uh, way to urban forestry as a career path in education? I mean, I work with soils and how I came to that was, you know, I'm from the Chicago area and I was living in Chicago and the park system and the outdoor spaces there and sort of the, the free and clear green spaces along the lake, they're just so important to life in the city. So you may live in an apartment or a house and not really have any private green space, but just this amazing park system, you can take your family out and have a picnic or a softball game, you know, go out with my friends. And it it just became so clear to me how important that was for everybody. And I wanted to work in that area. And I didn't really have any idea, you know, what I was doing. So I started to take classes at the Chicago Botanic Garden. And then I eventually applied to graduate school. And I went to work with Nina Bassick at the Urban Horticulture Institute at Cornell. And when I got there, that's when I realized that one of the biggest issues that we have in green spaces and cities is below ground. It's, it's the soils issues. And so I really started investigating, you know, those typical urban problems that we have, you know, things like soil compaction and soil volume limitation, these kinds of things. And as I've worked through my career, that's really developed into a more holistic appreciation of of soil. I mean, soil is this, this amazing system with all of these biological interactions and it has these, you know, physical properties and so forth, but it's a whole system under there and it supports life on earth. And so I just have really focused my energy on, on that 
part of the urban forest system because I think that's what everything is resting on. Of course, you know, you can say that about all kinds of things, right? But to me, the soil was sort of this unstudied area below ground. It's very challenging right now for people to manage urban soils. I mean, so we we know a lot more about them than we did when I started out, but there's a shortage of soil, right? And it's very hard to protect. And so we have a lot of situations where people are asking themselves, like, what should I do? The soil is, is damaged. I mean, can it be restored or do we need new soil or what's the best soil or, you know, these kinds of questions. And there's no simple answer to that because it's a very complex system. It's not like you can just go out and order up some soil, you know, I mean, you can, but it's, it's really just a, a starting place. It's not a true soil with its full, all the interactions going on that, that a healthy soil has. Right, right. I think a big epiphany for me as an arborist was the first landscape underground conference at the Morton Arboretum. I think it was 91 or 92. And I also, even I've noticed with some of the guests that soil keeps coming up in a, like you say, it's, it's, I don't, it's almost like it's having its moment. People are coming around to understanding it. I'm a Chicagoan as well in Philly now and Coming from Chicago to Philly was eye-opening in terms of infrastructure uh, underground because it's an old city. Mm-hmm. Lots was done to raise it up, and we would cut tree pits that were often just three feet by three feet and, and plant the tree. Yeah. Every city is different. And, and Chicago, I you know just took it for granted that every big city had parkways that were, you know, eight feet across right. and deep. Black, loamy soil. (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, the parkway system, which is is that little strip of grass that's along in front of the sidewalk, between the street and the sidewalk, is just, it's an amazing system. And and Chicago has fantastic tree canopy largely because of that. And then what's happened is the trees and the soil were finding ways to, to persist and survive, right? And then when we got more sophisticated and more aggressive about the built part of the system, you know, the sidewalks, like the sidewalks are better, quote unquote, and, you know, stronger and, and, and built not to buckle, then, then we were really holding the trees and the soils back. Because of course, the roots and soil, you know, they're all part of the same system. So it's really a a below ground system. It's not like you have soil separate from roots. They're all integrated together. Yeah, you know, when I think of soil and my studies in horticulture, I always thought that it was always an add on rather than part of. And I always thought it to be like us going to the moon. And this is our, uh, for horticulture people and plant people, the soil is actually like going to the moon, trying to trying to figure out what is there and what's happening. And we have done so little research on soil that I, I think that it is really coming into its own now. And it should be pushed further in the forefront because of what it does. I mean, it is the skin of the surface of the earth and it is what holds plants into place and gives them a space for life. And we take it for granted, I think. Well, it's hard to study, you know, because of course you can't see it. One thing that I find sort of endlessly interesting is how to sort of 
imagine or conceive of what's going on below ground. You can't see it necessarily, but there are all these clues that are around that you can draw on to understand what's happening. Like you can look at the topography and you can determine if, well, is it unnaturally flat here? Does, you know, maybe there's been some cutting and filling and grading. And so you can kind of try to piece together the land use history. It's like, well, how old is this building? When was it put here? Does this sidewalk look new? You can, of course, go back into archival records to piece together what's happened over time. And, and especially in older cities, that might be something that is worth doing. But you can, you can do that, and then you can see how the trees and the plants are responding, and you can try to assess where roots are growing. I mean, sometimes you can see, like, say, a willow oak or something that has chlorosis on one side. Well, then you look at the root system, like, where is that side of the root system going? You know, and so you can start to sort of envision with experience and practice and some digging around what's going on below ground. The roots change the soil, right? It's all part of this system. And so if you have roots growing under pavement or something, there's going to be soil carbon under there because the roots are growing and dying, you know, and there's root exudates and all these things. And there's other, you know, organisms and, and microbial life that are associated with all that and fungi and so forth. So it's more like kind of creating a environment where things can thrive, like many things can thrive. And I think thinking about it, even though I work with a lot of sort of engineered systems and I sort of secretly love engineering, you know, we have to always recognize the soil as this living thing. And I think if you think about it that way, if you just sort of take a step back and think about it as how can I create space for living things, it changes the way you might think about how to manage it. It's interesting. There's a parallel movement in agriculture, right? Mm -hmm. A lot more of the regenerative discussion for how farmers should be considering how to manage their vast acreage in ways that uh, are not just going to be a soil test and broadcast fertilizers of high nitrogen and other manufactured fertilizers. Yeah. You going going back to the old days of crop rotations. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, so some of my early research was about soil compaction and how roots respond to that. I mean, you can look at it in a purely physical way, just like the physical properties of the soil. So when you have a soil that's compacted, if it has a lot of clay in it, when it gets wet, it gets softer. And then roots can penetrate it. You know, they, they can actually push into it. Whereas if it's hard, they can't push into it. So there's this dynamic interaction between moisture and penetrability of the soil. And then certain species can take advantage of that more easily than others because they're more adapted to those kind of wet conditions. That's why it's always puzzling to people to see all these bottomland species doing so well in cities because we think of cities as being hot and dry, right? So what's that American elm? Like, why is the American elm and the honey locust so happy? Well, it, it's this interaction with the soil and the, and the moisture, right? So these kinds of things can really give you a window into where roots might grow and then what roots might grow. And then that's when the soil changes because there's life in it. I've dug so many soil pits in cities where you see a lot going on at the surface and then you hit this kind of barrier and it just looks like building material. It doesn't seem to be doing anything, you know? And I think it's creating those conditions that you can get roots in there and other kinds of organisms. And, and then you see 
the soil developing and changing over time. When you were talking about engineering and you're talking about tree roots pushing through clay, it kind of reminded me that soil really is a blend of all sciences. It's not only forensic science, archaeological science, but anthropological science. We're engin engineers, you know, trying to figure out how does that root push through that soil mm -hmm. when it's just the right tenacity for it to be able to push through it. And, and you think to yourself, that's darn amazing that that tree root can do that. And the, the roots are just amazing. I mean, they can flatten and they can have just their little root hairs just on the side, like little wings. I mean, they can do all kinds of interesting things. So you're not really far <laughs> from engineering. So is where I was going with this, that you're, yes, you're you, yeah. it, it is, you have to think outside the box of just soil. You have to think of all those other sciences in order for things to work. That's true. And, and, you know, and that's true for the whole urban forest system. I mean, it is so complex. I mean, that's going back to our program at UBC. I mean, you have design, engineering, planning. I mean, they are just as important as some of the community engagement. I mean, that's critical. You can't do anything without that. And that's just as important as below ground biological systems and the physical systems. So, I mean, you really have to get everything to work together. I mean, it's it's sort of like you can have the best tree in the world, but if someone, you know, runs their lawnmower over it, that's all, it's over, right? So in a way, you really have to make sure you have your bases covered. I think that's one of the hardest parts because you have a long-lived organism like a tree. It potentially could live hundreds and many hundreds of years. If, if something catastrophic happens to it at any point during that time, then you can potentially lose that tree, right? And so maybe those things are in contrast. I don't know what you think, but it's a, it's a sort of like you have this complex resilient system, but at the same time, you have to kind of get everything right. And I, th I think that's what makes it so difficult for cities to manage their trees, you know, because they have to have the right below ground systems. They have to have the right management and maintenance. They have to have the right species. They have to have the right pruning. They have to have the community want the trees. They have to have, you know, the, the design has to work with the buildings. You can't be, you know, dropping mulberries on somebody's car or they're not going to feel as warm and fuzzy about that tree as you might like. Dirty. Right? Well, which brings me to another point where, you know, the city is a very harsh location for trees. And when we think about meteorological functions that happen within the city, those narrow portals between buildings that air passes through speed up wind mm -hmm. and create much faster, quicker moving winds and create wind shear much quicker than some other places. And that's a whole nother thing that we don't, we're talking about soil, but that's, we have to worry about that also above ground. Yeah, and I know, I know Nina Basick and Tom Whitlow had done some research a long time ago in New York City about some of those sort of urban canyon effects. And I think there's been some more research on that, not so much on the wind, I mean, their research, but even just sort of the heat and sun and shade patterns. There's more to be learned about that. And there's more to be learned about how, how we should think about that when it comes to design. Because there's so much you can do with design in cities. You can really make a big difference. I mean, I... You know, because we can get really rooted in, in patterns and just repeat them all the time. Like I've seen so many, I'm sure you've seen this too, where you have this huge open soil space that has maybe lawn or some other plants or something. And then the trees 
are over in the sidewalk and little cutouts when they could be just, you know, three or four feet to the left and they'd have all the soil they wanted, right? But but it's because we think, okay, cut out, that's where the tree goes, you know? And so we can repeat these patterns without thinking about them. And that's one thing I think is, is you know, I really enjoy working with the students because they have so many new ideas and so much energy. And so we have all these really bright young people who are, going to make the world a better place for us. Susan, can you talk about your work with stormwater management? And I guess I'll just ask the innocent question of why is managing stormwater so important? So managing stormwater is important because for water quality and water supply issues. I mean, so there's there's the broad environmental issues that make stormwater management really important. And initially, stormwater in cities was really managed to address flooding concerns. And and that's also important, right? But the focus has shifted more towards the impact of not managing stormwater on water quality. Some of those things like, for example, like detention ponds, the idea there was, okay, well, we don't want the water to go downstream and flood someone. We're going to collect it in this pond and then we're going to release it at the same rate that it would have been released naturally. And then we're going to protect people from flooding and everything will be great. But what can happen is that the water can get very hot in those ponds and you can actually have thermal pollution, which can affect life in the creek that it eventually gets released into. They're not as good as we might've hoped in trapping like nitrogen and phosphorus and sediment and so forth. So this idea of, of a more distributed stormwater management that is more closely mimics the natural forest is one solution to that. That's essentially the, the nature-based solution to stormwater management. And so a natural forest, of course, you know, each square inch of ground is handling the rain that falls on that square inch of ground. You don't have this, this concept of let's concentrate it all somewhere. It's all diffuse, right? And so from an urban forest point of view, that whole need that cities have we need to say protect the Chesapeake Bay or you know any of these other waterways we have the Fraser River whatever it integrates perfectly with our needs as urban forest managers and green space managers and then of course the reason i am interested in it is because it all just comes right back to soil right so if you're a, a tree in the woods and water falls down and it hits your canopy and then, of course, it's slowed in its path, falling through the canopy to the ground. The ground is covered with all of these fallen leaves and, and ferns or, you know, whatever the understory plants are there. It's this very complex, rich, organic environment. It can receive that water. You also have water directed down the trunk, flowing along the roots, and the roots create tunnels to guide the water you know, it's called a preferential flow path where water goes down the roots and then it goes into the deeper soil layers and that's going to help provide groundwater recharge. So it's an integral part of that system. I've often, you know, asked myself, okay, well, I understand we have to have a parking lot. So I did some research probably about 15 years ago on creating a parking lot that had no runoff. And so this was, the idea was you would have pavement over structural soil and you'd have trees growing in it. And the structural soil would act like a reservoir, a temporary reservoir for stormwater. The trees would be able to take that water up and transpire it. And you can do that. I mean, we built one at Virginia Tech, a zero runoff parking lot. But 
those concepts, you can maximize the potential for stormwater management of almost any design. It doesn't have to be structural soils or pavement or anything like that. And as someone who really cares about soil and really sees the value in protecting soil, this is another feature of stormwater management. So it's hard for cities and and engineers sometimes to get out of the mindset of, okay, where are we going to put the water and how much water is it going to hold and where's it going to go? And there's a good reason for that. It's because there's regulations you have to meet where you have a certain volume of water you have to control. So if you want to do the calculations to figure out how to control it, you need to know how much water does this retention area hold and and how fast will it move in and how fast will it move out and so forth. And so trees are much more complicated and much less predictable than that, right? So it it makes it more challenging to use these nature-based approaches to these kinds of problems. But I think the potential reward is really high. And that's why I'm interested in it. So there's potential in every plant and every bit of open soil in a city to receive rainfall and and mediate the water cycle, right? And since cities have to do that, if we can kind of put that at the top of our mind as, you know, this is something we should be trying to do, it's going to help the whole system. It's a problem that people have to solve right now. And it's very expensive to solve it. And we can solve it with green spaces in a way that's going to have so many other benefits. You know, they're going to help plants and people and, you know, wildlife and everything else. And so devising ways to to do that, to use nature-based approaches for stormwater management, I think is really just a win-win for everybody. And so I've really been interested in it and I've spent a lot of time working on projects that relate to those kinds of questions. When uh, Chicago started its green technology building, and we were out there with the garden communicators to see it, uh, we were so impressed. And I would use that as a model for a lot of my classrooms when I was teaching a temple. I would say, you know, let's take a look at this model. This is before the uh, Sustainable Sites Initiative, which you were involved with. Mm-hmm. The idea of coming up with, okay, well, it's not just about trees. We also have to have green roofs and we also have to have swales that might just have a grouping of perennials and grasses, or we might have just a whole area, a savanna like uh, shrub area that could do another heavy lifting so that you have a diversity and it's just as important to have the diversity as, as it is to have the infrastructure. Right. And, it, and it's such a good point because that's what builds in resilience to your system, right? And that's why the internet was such a huge advance because if one little section of it goes down, other sections can keep the communication going, right? I mean, that's the whole principle of it. And and of course, that's the whole principle of ecological systems as well. So it's this idea of diversity, many, many approaches to the same problem. I mean, I just love plants, you know, and I I love trees, but I also love all other kinds of plants. Um, And just creating environments where you can have really diverse plant life that people can enjoy and that are going to function and support life on earth. I mean, that's just, that's a privilege to be able to contribute to that. So that's that to me is very inspiring. And and most people live in cities, you know, and I think that it's important to keep that diversity in cities and just, you know, the quirkiness of it all. I also think that the representation of the people, the diversity of people should also represent the diversity of the landscape. 
and they should always be mm-hmm. there should always be a diversity in both and if if there isn't then you don't have a well managed system exactly and and you know here in the united states or in, in north america more broadly we have a certain concept of like what a street should look like and what street trees should look like and you know we value like a a, a natural form tree uh, you know, a, large trees, individual trees, but there's so many different ways we can create urban green spaces and urban forests. And of course, there's nothing more lovely to me than just a huge oak tree. You know, I just, it's a wonderful site, but there's other things as well, right? And so I think your point's well taken. I mean, there's, we have a lot of different kinds of communities and different kinds of spaces and cities, and, you know, we should celebrate that. Chicago's a great place for green space, I have to say, you know, <laughs> I haven't lived there for a long time. It is. And it doesn't surprise me that you were from Chicago and House from Chicago, and you both have this passion where you had this green technology building. And they actually, they don't have it labeled that anymore because everything has mm-hmm. morphed into from that model. So there's a model throughout the whole city. It's not just that building anymore. So I think that's a really great tribute to the city itself for being able to start and continue to grow that way. Yeah. And I know that you had asked about the Sustainable Sites Initiative. and Right. Yeah, we want to hear about that. Sites is it's a voluntary certification system for sustainability in landscapes. And so it's partnered with like LEAD, which is Leadership and Environment, Energy and Environmental Design for Buildings. So you have sort of green buildings and the the issue was, well, okay, it's very nice. We have this green building, but what about all the land surrounding the building? That also needs to be sustainable, right? So SITES was really conceived to address that gap. And what is great about sites and what I really appreciate about it is that it creates a mechanism for people to really think objectively and scientifically about whether a landscape is sustainable. You know, it's just, it's so easy to say, oh, what's a sustainable practice? Oh, well, you know, a rain garden is a sustainable practice or a green roof is a sustainable practice. Well, you can make a green roof, which is very sustainable, or you can make a green roof that's not at all sustainable, right? It's, it's all in how it's done. And so SITES goes deeper and really looks into what are the, what does the science say? Like, what's the data about what's sustainable? And what are our values about things we want to sustain? And then kind of puts it into a system where you can execute that in a construction and design environment. And so... I think it's a fantastic tool for, you know, even if you're not getting your site certified, just using the reference guide to understand what what are your options and, and what are the things that you might want to quantify, I think is valuable. And then, of course, from a soils perspective, one thing that SITES does is it really puts a, a high value on protecting the soil and vegetation zones. And so it's, again, this concept that you're protecting soil and vegetation together. It recognizes it as this complex that works together. And so like some of the, on UBC's campus, we have a, a SITES project. And I think the most successful part of the project are the protected soil and vegetation zones that were in there where they they protected and preserved that intact soil layer and the plants that are associated with it. 
that's a key component of sites. And so I was on the soils technical committee and we met every single month for, I don't even know how many years, because when we first started, the question was, well, what's sustainability in soil? And there wasn't really an answer, you know, like, what is that? What does that mean? Right. And so we really had to start from scratch and develop the concepts about how we would quantify and define and measure sustainability and then how you would create a system, a certification system that embodies those ideas. And they did. They brought everyone to consensus, which is really a major undertaking. Because when people come to the table, they want to think, well, everything that I do is sustainable. Your first kind of gut reaction is like, oh, well, I think this is good. Therefore, it must be sustainable. This should be what we certify. But no, 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 no. We had to break it all down to first principles. From the sites initiative, there's been a lot of research on trying to keep large swaths of land when they're going to develop, where before they used to clear everything off and get rid of everything and then start over. But what they were missing or what they weren't understanding is that that swath that you leave is continually doing services that the rest of your site is not because you're building on it and because there is, there's no plant material. This actually becomes a almost like a filter and also a, co a collective for that site. And it also becomes later on, not only a diversity action, but it allows other plants to more easily settle themselves in knowing that there's other plants around. And a lot of people don't think about that, but if a plant knows that its roots can touch another system, it can settle itself in much quicker. Yeah, I, th I think it, it creates this kind of what you're describing is, is sort of creates this sort of germ for, you know, this more complex system on the site. Yes. And I, I would agree with that. And I think that a key part of that is knowledge, right? I mean, so one of the key factors is if you go and, and, and your development style is, oh, I'm just going to clear this, you know, lot line to lot line, we're going to cut everything down, make a nice clean slate put our buildings where we want, and then we'll bring in some soil and some plants and tidy it all up, right? So if you have that old model like that, it doesn't require any knowledge about what's there because you're starting from scratch. You're just taking it all away. And so as soon as you get this more sophisticated model, you have to have expertise. Like someone has to be able to go out there and say, well, if we're going to protect... 25% of this one acre lot, which 25%, which part of it is more valuable? You have to be able to go out there and assess the condition, what's there, what plants are there, what the soil conditions are, how different features of the site will affect them over time. And that requires considerable expertise. And so one of the challenges for sites has been, okay, now we say you have to go out and do this site assessment but who do you find to do such a thing? Because there's different professions that assess sites for different purposes, but there really isn't a, a large body of people who can do these very integrated environmental ecological assessments of sites. So I think that's been a challenge uh, for, for everyone. So we're dealing with these really complex ecological systems. So it requires a lot of knowledge and, and practice. And it also can be kind of localized, you know. I found that moving to Vancouver from Virginia. So 
I mean, I knew every plant in Virginia and I could go and look at any site and I could just instantly sort of see what had happened in the past because I was just so familiar with the patterns. But when I got to Vancouver, I'm looking around, I'm thinking, I have no idea what's going on here. You know, because you have to learn the history of the land and, and what kinds of patterns are typical and how different species interact and, and all these different kinds of things. And so, you know, of course, I know how to teach myself that and, and I'm catching up, but there is, there is a local aspect to it, right? So you need this sort of regional or local expert who's familiar with all the different organisms that live in your world. Getting back to the mid-Atlantic states and eastern seaboard with Philadelphia, Baltimore, Newark, New Jersey, you know, we have these old cities and we've talked about stormwater management. And then I'm, I'm probably, you know, just about a mile away from where the neighborhoods really start to struggle economically. And, you know, it's reflected in, in, the, in the streets and the dead trees and the vacant lots and stuff like that. So I'm always coming back to, you know, practical solutions. And you did mention that stormwater management is going to be a expensive proposition a lot of the time. And I'm just wondering if you were to address city government of Baltimore or Philadelphia, what are some things that big cities can be thinking about? Because, you know, we can't even get our trash picked up in a timely fashion, let alone... Um, strategies for capturing rainwater and things like that. Yes, I, I think Philadelphia did an assessment of what the economics would be of having gray infrastructure to manage their water problems versus green infrastructure. But I think, you know, some of those questions are sort of larger political questions, really, you know, like where do we get funds and how are funds directed and and, and how are they used and and where do they come from? Do they come from the federal government or state or provincial governments and uh, local governments and different communities? So there, there's all those kinds of questions. My area of expertise is focused on the sort of how at the site level, like how we can make that work. And so there are all kinds of programs to address stormwater issues. So for example, like a really common one you might see in cities in the in the eastern seaboard would be gutter disconnects, for example. So there might be housing where the gutters were directed directly into the street, they were connected and they went straight into the storm drains. So the city might say, okay, everyone has to disconnect this and now you have to manage the stormwater coming off your roof on site. It has to go into a landscaped area, right? And then there's also questions about things like stormwater utility fees of various types. So like, for example, in Roanoke, Virginia and in Richmond, there's a small assessment for impervious surface, right? And so those types of programs, there's potential, I think, to make them a little bit more comprehensive. And so, for example, if you looked at just your, your stormwater fee, Typically for individual residences, it'll just be a flat fee, $6 a month or something like that. Whereas for commercial properties, they might actually assess how much impervious area there is. But there's more sort of geospatial analysis tools. There's more ways to measure things. So we could become a little more sophisticated about that and look at like effective imper impervious surface 
and soil quality on properties and and create more incentives and, and programs for people to be able to reap the financial benefit of managing property in a sustainable and holistic way. And then when it comes to tree cover, for example, where I am right now, uh, I'm on the north side of Richmond. There are so many dead trees on our street from emerald ash borer and lawnmower attacks. And the city clearly doesn't have the capacity to just replace them all. But people in the neighborhood are going out and replacing trees. But those kinds of partnerships between the community and the city they require you know, funding and people and effort, and we can do it. We as a society can do it. But I personally think we need to just have more effort in that area. It has to do with will, if you are willing to do it. And I remember uh, going into a conference and they said, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna come up with ideas, but there's one thing that we can't talk about, and that's money, because money becomes the limiting factor to thought. And if we not talk about money and just try to come up with all the possibilities that are there on the spectrum, then we could start after we come up with our process or whatever it is, then we could start to be creative and just have it talk about money and just talk about how things could be funded. So just as much as we have a a charrette on the ideas, all the ideas, well, now we're going to have a charrette on how we can use money or find money for all the things that we've just talked about. I think some of this has to do with the, the conception of the public or maybe government about the essential nature of green spaces. So is, is it something that's nice to have or is it something that is essential to have? Great question. No, no city says, you know, it's been nice to have running water at everyone's house. I mean, <laughs> but it's really expensive. So if you don't mind, we're just going to shut it off and you can just, you know, go down to the lake with your bucket and bring some home. There's this aspect of like what's essential and what's just sort of nice. And, you know, those things depend on what what we decide as a society is valuable. And then there are certain things that everyone agrees are really essential, like clean water, for example. And so there are different ways to achieve that. And how do we want to go about it? So, you know, these become kind of societal questions, I guess. Well, before we go, we want to, we always ask the question about favorite trees, favorite groups of trees, um, because everybody always has some something to share about. Plus, I want to advance the question and ask Susan what her favorite U.S. tree is versus the one north of the... North of the border? First of all, I love all trees. Every, every tree has its place, right? And so even trees that I may not want in a certain location, I still really like them. Um, my, my absolute favorite tree. I mean, I'm afraid my answers are not going to be particularly exciting because my, my really, my favorite tree is, is the white oak Quercus alba. I mean, it's just, I just love the, the kind of endurance that they have. And I, and I love the way they've become so large and, and they're also just so very solid. I, I just really love that about them. In uh, Vancouver, my favorite tree is probably the most common tree that is there, which is the Western red cedar. So it's just, it's just a truly 
majestic tree. And there's, there's other cool trees like Sitka spruce. There's some of those around and, you know, they're not as common. And so when you see them, they're really special. But I just admire the Western red cedar and it's just lovely. Very cool. And we love it here too, because the deer don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we really appreciate you being on our podcast. And we continue to wish you the best in all your work and all the people that you're influencing every day. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Susan. Okay, bye-bye. Take care. Bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.